We now continue with the next segment or two of Authority, Headship, and Family Structure According to Moses. I am your author, Peter G. Rambo Sr., uh, a.k.a. Pete Rambo, author of NotSav, N-A-T-S-A-B.com, the NotSav.com blog, uh, as well as co-author contributor to the 113Restoration.com blog. So here we go. We're headed into Shemot. This is the first of the Torah portions from Exodus and our commentary or my commentary on what what scripture has to say with regards to authority, headship, and family structure, specifically as it comes out of the Torah and then its connection throughout uh, the rest of scripture. Shemot, Exodus 1, 1 to 6, 1. Exodus begins several generations after Joseph. Israel has grown numerous, and the transition from a man, Jacob, to a family of tribes has happened. The formation of Israel as a nation has not yet occurred because that requires a constitution, something we will see in a couple portions at Mount Sinai. We can, however, see that the family is tribal and that under the rod of Pharaoh is still relying to some degree on the leadership of elders and tribal patriarchs. To be very clear, Israel is at its root a patriarchal tribal family. The context of the Torah and the context of all of Scripture and the context of the future restored kingdom under the headship of Messiah is a patriarchal tribal family. And this is something that I stress over and over now in my conversations is that we understand that as a as a people, restored Israel is not a nation in the Western, particularly Greco-Roman sense of the word. Um, We are a patriarchal tribal family, and the Torah is actually a document for how a community is supposed to function together and how a family is supposed to take care of each other, look out for each other's interests, and to treat each other, as well as be responsible to our Elohim. Continuing now in the text. We have seen this developing through the patriarchs and their leadership in the family. Scripture nowhere teaches or asserts anything other than patriarchal tribes functioning together as a nation according to the covenantal condition, uh, covenantal constitution of the Torah. It is this process of development and growth that we will witness and learn from in the coming weeks as the Torah portions transition from historical, as most of Genesis is, to constitution or law or instruction, interjected with historic narr- uh, historical narrative to explain the formative and functional process. Exodus 1.1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Mitzrayim with Yaakov. They came each one with his household, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Yaakov were 70 in number, but Yosef was in Egypt, Mitzrayim. Yosef died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. The enemy hates patriarchy and hates headship. Just take a look at the world around in the process of history. Patriarchy in scripture, uh, the attack is most often against the seed, and we see this tactic employed uh, employed against Israel by 
Pero. Exodus 1, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Mitzrayim who did not know Yosef. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Bene Israel, or the sons of Israel, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Perot storage cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of B'nai, or the sons of Israel. <clears throat> the Egyptians compelled B'nai Israel to labor vigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks, and at labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Mitzrayim spoke to the Ivrit midwives, one of whose name was Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. While indeed the whole of the people bear the burden, the attack is against the sons. It is the sons who bear the seed. They carry the leadership and headship responsibility and become the patriarchs. To destroy the people, the enemy goes after the seed. Consider the cultural attack on men today. The enemy's tactic is more subtle, but the attempt to emasculate men and destroy their position of leadership and responsibility through various means has not changed. And for the restoration of Israel, it is necessary for men to be restored to leadership and headship. From the creation of Adam, we have seen over and over that God deals primarily with man, and it is man's responsibility to lead and teach his family. Remember, 1 Corinthians 11, verses, uh, let's select verses 3 and 7 through 9. But I want you to understand that Mashiach is the head of every man, and man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Mashiach. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Please pay attention as we move forward in the Torah. The commandments, with only one exception that I know of, are written to and given to the men, the sons of Israel, B'nai Israel. Each son or man then, like Adam, is responsible to teach and lead those under his authority. Man is the image and glory of God, while woman is the image and glory of man. Each family is a microcosm of Eden, and the nation as a whole under the headship of Mashiach is also a microcosm of Gan Eden, or the Garden of Eden. Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Messiah also is the head of the congregation the kahal, the ecclesia, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the congregation is subject to Messiah, so also the wives to their husbands in everything. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Messiah and the congregation. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she reverences or fears her husband. Fear being in a healthy way. 
<clears throat> this is not a popular thing to say or teach, but it is rock-solid truth that, that must be understood and entered into if we are to walk out Torah correctly. Families cannot and will not function properly without the man leading. As a people, we will not be restored and function properly without men leading. Male headship and leadership is imperative for a patriarchal tribal nation or people, family, to be restored. Make no mistake, women are valuable and are to be treated with love and honor. God demands such, and any man that walks as the Messiah will love and honor the women under his headship. At the same time, we need to be sparklingly clear. God's order is for men to lead women, not the other way around. Witness the entire testimony of Scripture. This brings us back to the main point that Israel is a tribal, patriarchal nation or people that is firmly established on the headship and leadership of men. We must now move forward and begin considering Moshe. Exodus chapter 2 covers 80 years in very short order. Without waxing eloquent on arcs and sheep, we can quickly understand that God is not quickly or easily easy in his preparation of a man to lead. Often the journey of preparation can be long and arduous with many lessons and pitfalls. Moshe's is no, ex no exception. After 40 years of education and leadership skills in the court of Pharaoh, he gains another 40 years of experience with fickle sheep in the wilderness of Midian. He may not have understood the lessons of path that God had him on, but God certainly did and was intentional in every step. Men, patriarchal leaders, must understand that the position and responsibility is not inherited or bestowed. While acknowledgement uh, from others and approval from other leaders helps to affirm him, the patriarch will earn his place through experience, study, reflection, and God's direction. Further, in many circumstances, he will have a specific call from God. Even then, God may need to give him a push into the direction, into the positions with the heaviest burden. Moses receives such a push in Exodus 3 as the angel of the Lord grabs his attention from the midst of the burning bush, then proceeds to give very clear instruction and direction. Moses will function as a type of kinsman redeemer and an archetype of the Messiah. See Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. God specifically instructs Moses to, and we pick up in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. God specifically instructs Moses to go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the El of Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Mitzrayim. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Mitzrayim to the land of the Canaani, uh, the Hiti, the Amri, the Perizzi, the Hivid, the Jebusi, or Yebusi, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Mitzrayim, and you will say to him, Yahweh, the Elohim of the Ivrit, the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our Elohim. Elders are patriarchs, and patriarchal headship leads to 
the eldership. In Christendom, we're taught to elect or appoint elders leading us to view an elder as holding an office or a position, but this is not the testimony of the Torah. Over and over in Scripture, we see that the elders are the ones who sit in the city gates and act as judges and wise counsel for the city or community. They are the ones that are aged, the gray hairs, the old who have the wisdom and leadership, the patriarchs, heads and leaders of families. Elder is not an office that they hold, but who or what they are. This leads to a thought that needs to be strongly considered. Was Paul instituting something new when he appointed or instructed to be appointed elders? Or was Paul acting in a pragmatic, temporary way until the new believers could begin to walk in patriarchal communities and grow, rear uh, elders and patriarchs to lead those communities of grafted-in Israelites? As I study more deeply, the patriarchal structure of Israel and the underlying family marriage structure clearly taught in Torah, I see more and more that Paul was intentional in not only supporting, but teaching these things both directly and indirectly between the lines in his letters written to those of the scattered house of Israel returning to the covenant. I maintain that patriarchy and patriarchal leadership must be restored for the proper and full restoration of the whole house of Israel. Exodus 4, starting in verse 28, Moshe told Aharon all the words of Yahweh with which, he had, uh, with which he had sent him and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moshe and Aharon went and assembled all the elders of Bnei Israel, And Aharon spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moshe. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about Bnei Israel. Uh, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Moshe and Aharon addressed the elders. This confirms again that Israel had a leadership structure in place even though they were in bondage. They already functioned as families, clans, and tribes. Unlike today's disparate messianics scattered across the planet who seem content to not congeal into a people and learn to walk in community, Israel was functioning as a family and as tribes while in exile. This begs the question, when will we cease trying to form top-down governments or simply be dissociative with everyone with whom we disagree? When will we begin to walk with the brothers and sisters around us as family and function as small communities and enclaves to learn the humility of dwelling in peace and unity while the Father gathers us into communities? Must we wait for the hunters? Jeremiah 16, 16, and the crucible of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Leadership is hard. Often the Almighty asks us to do hard things. Addressing Perot had to be a rather fearsome thing for Moshe to do. Imagine, for example, being a nobody in Bolivia and going to the president of the United States and demanding that all of blank people group, not necessarily Hispanic, but I'm just creating an example here, all of blank people group be released with resources in hand to leave the country. This would be particularly impactful if the U.S. was dependent on the labor force of blank people, uh, people group for economic welfare. Moshe needed some kind of serious spine to make demands of the most powerful man on the planet at that time. Yet, generally speaking, this is exactly the type of God, uh, job God created man to do. 
Exodus 5. And afterwards, Moshe and Aharon came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yehovah, the Elohim of Israel, or Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh, that I would obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The Elohim of the Ivrit has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our Elohim. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Israel had been in Mitzrayim for, by some countings for 283 years. Now, suddenly, their mouthpiece is demanding that they be released. Predictably, Pero was not happy and their burden was about to grow. But so was that of Moshe. Perot required the Israelites to begin uh, producing their own straw as well as making the bricks. So the foreman of B'nai Israel cried out to Perot, who blamed the increased work on Moshe. Uh, Exodus 5, 19 and following. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Perot's presence, they met Moshe and Aharon as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may Yahweh look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Perot's sight and in the sight of the servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Previously, we noted that leadership is hard, and now we see just how hard it can be. It's not enough that Moses has to face the ire of Perot, particularly as the plagues wear on, but here he has to face the wrath of his own people. Most people called to hard places will stand in this very dark place at one point or another. It is a challenging chasm filled with questions and an open place of attack from the enemy. Doubt, depression, and rejection are often the companion of leadership. Moshe here experiences that on multiple occasions throughout the Torah. Predictably, the Father has prepared him for this, and as we will see over and over, the Almighty is big enough to accept Moshe's concerns, frustrations, and even anger at times. Only disobedience is not allowed, as we will see in the future. Exodus 5, 22 and following. Then Moshe returned to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, why have you brought harm upon this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Perot to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. The final phrase is a bit humorous to me. I recognize a, a microwave mentality in our generation, but I guess Moshe was expecting great and mighty actions immediately. Truthfully, God often takes his time and has many purposes involved in his sequence or course of action. In the case of Perot and God's destruction of Mitzrayim, the process will take months or more. Leaders are often visionaries or men of great faith. Moshe knew that God had declared the people would stand at Mount Sinai. This led to the faith and vision that would often press him forward even when the circumstances looked bleak. As a type of kinsman redeemer, he walks in a similar role as Yosef. He is faced with adversity, both from his brothers and from Mitzrayim, yet he stays the course by faith. He is led by Elohim and walks according to the vision he has been given, direct commands from the Almighty and leads. 
he will find himself in this challenging chasm over and over for the next 40 years. Always it is God who reveals himself and exalts himself while Moshe remains a humble servant. Exodus 6. Then Yahweh said to Moshe, Now you shall see what I will do to Perot, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. Israel will enter a crucible of tribulation, then they will be surrounded by a hedge of protection. Moshe will lead the way by his own faith and action ahead of the people. Patriarchs lead. Patriarchs walk where others fear to go. Patriarchs accept the challenges God asks of them, even if at times reluctantly. Moshe typifies our Messiah and is an example for aspiring leaders and patriarchs to follow. Paul walks a similar journey that was terribly hard. How often was he stoned and left for dead, beaten with rods, rejected by the very people he was seeking to save, attacked, tried, and imprisoned by the powers that be. Near the beginning of this portion, I quoted 1 Corinthians 11.3. Two verses before, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Messiah. Throughout Scripture, there are examples of men who are leaders and walk the path of patriarchs, whether physical or spiritual, as in the case of Paul, for the glory of God and the sake of Israel. May we do the same. There's much more to consider in this portion regarding patriarchy, headship, and leadership, but this will be all the meat served up in this commentary. Our next portion is Vayera, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 through 9, 35. Moshe and Perot go toe-to-toe, and God begins the disassembly of Egypt, Mitzrayim. But Why? Exodus chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. God spoke further to Moshe and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did, not make my, did I not make myself known to them? I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of Bnei Israel because the, those of Egyptian are whole, Egypt are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to Bnei Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Mitzrayim, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your Elohim, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your Elohim, who brought you out from under the burdens of Mitzrayim. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So Moshe spoke thus to Bnei Israel, but they did not listen to Moshe on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. In verses 6, 6 through 8, we find five special phrases. God says, Vehotseti, I will bring you out. Vehitzalti, I will save you. Vigalti, I will redeem you. Velachakti, I will take you. And Veheveti, I will bring you to the land. 
These five promises are called Lashon Ge'ulah, or language of redemption, because they refer to the five stages of redemption of Israel. These also relate to the five cups of Passover. What we want to do is to focus on the fourth phrase, I will take you. The Hebrew, Lachak, H3947, is used in a number of ways, one of which is take a wife or seize to marry. In this passage, God is using marriage or betrothal language in expressing his passion for Israel. Our study thus far has focused on family and patriarchy, an ongoing topic, but we can begin to consider the transition of Israel to a nation. In Egypt, there are tribes and functioning in what can probably be a somewhat loose-knit community that has been browbeaten and placed under bondage by the fearful Egyptians. God clearly has a plan and a purpose to bring them out as a people. We can see in Ephesians 5 that God's relationship with his people is to be imaged in a marriage between man and woman. A man and his woman should be a mirror in which we see God and his people. Ephesians 5.24, but as the church is subject to Messiah, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Messiah and the ecclesia. The larger context of the Ephesians passage adds depth, but the main point is that we should be able to understand some things about the relationship between either God and his people or man and his woman when we study the other. God, in Exodus 6, identifies himself as the Redeemer. Interestingly, like Boaz and Ruth, God heard their groanings and he rose up to take action. In the Ruth and Boaz story, we see that she, under the wisdom and direction of Naomi, gives initiative to make her case before the Redeemer, or takes initiative, I'm sorry, she takes initiative to make her case before the Redeemer. Boaz then, seeing her desire for him, takes the initiative to redeem her. What is really interesting is understanding that even at this point, God sees Israel as two brides. And this is a challenging thought, but let's let's walk through this. He sees her as being defiled, but still worthy of his mediation. Let's look at Ezekiel 23 for a bit of shocking scripture. Ezekiel 23. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Mitzrayim. They played the harlot in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and there their virgin bosom was handled. Their names were Ohola the elder and Oholabah her sister, and they became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. And as for their names, Samaria is Ahola, and Jerusalem is Aholabah. Aholabah played the harlot while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors, who were clothed in purple, governors and officials, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her harlotries on them, all of whom were the choicest of men of Assyria, and with all whom she lusted after. With all their idols, she defiled herself. She did not forsake her harlotries from the time in Mitzrayim, for in her her youth men had lain with her, and they handled her virgin bosom and poured out their lust on her. 
Uh, skipping to verse 19, yet she multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Mitzrayim, Egypt. She lusted after their paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breast of your youth. 27, thus I will make your lewdness and your harlotry harlotry brought from the land of Mitzrayim to cease from you so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Mitzrayim, Egypt, anymore. This is a paradigm shifter for people who have never considered this passage in the marriage language it represents, or it presents, I'm sorry. But it clearly tells us several things that we need to be aware of when pondering God's rescue of Israel in Egypt. He already viewed Israel as two daughters of one woman who had already committed adulteries with Mitzrayim. They went down to Egypt under the betrothal covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. For those struggling with the idea of God having two brides, pay attention to Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. God again... Uh, um, God, again, in very clear terms, states that he's married to two sisters, Judah and Israel. He states that he has issued a certificate of divorce to Israel, but not to Judah. Uh, you can't divorce half a woman. I, I know there may be some guys who would like to try that, but uh, it's an all or nothing prospect. And yet very clearly, God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, that he divorced the house of Israel, but he did not divorce the house of Judah. Then, in a confirmation of this, he states in the famous New Covenant prophecy, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was an husband to them." Plural. It doesn't say plural. I said plural. Declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my Torah within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 30, 37 then tells us the result of this bringing together of the two sticks or the two brides. Ezekiel 37 verse 21, say to them, thus says Adonai Yahweh, behold, I will take Bene Israel from among the nations where they have gone and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land and I will make them one nation in the hand in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king over them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with, with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their Elohim. God's future plan for the redemption of the house of Israel is very similar to that of Exodus. Consider these two passages, Jeremiah chapter 16. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives, who brought up Bene Israel out of the land of Mitzrayim, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up Bene Israel from the land of the north, 
and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares Yahweh, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. In the second passage, uh, actually it's a continuation from the same chapter, but farther down verse 30 and following. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says Adonai Yahweh, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? When you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, you are defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares Yahweh Elohim, I will not be inquired of by you. What comes into your mind will not come about when you say, we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the land, serving wood and stone. As I live, declares Adonai Yahweh, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Mitzrayim, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares Adonai Yahweh. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am Yahweh. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says Adonai Yahweh, Go serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me, and my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares Adonai Yahweh, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all of your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of all the nations. And you will know that I am Yahweh when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give your forefathers, there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourself, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares Adonai Yahweh. You see, this is marriage language that completes the work God started in Egypt the first time. Remember our passage from Exodus chapter 6 that says, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your Elohim who brought you out from under the burden of the uh, Egyptians. 
I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. God's promise in Egypt, in Mitzrayim, to Israel, all 12 tribes, was that he would bring them out, and he would release them from their burdens, and he would give them the land. Ezekiel 37 tells the rest of the story when the prophet says, starting in verse 24, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Yaakov, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will also will be with them, and I will be their Elohim, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. God demonstrates the ultimate role for a husband. He redeems and fights for his bride or brides, but he also disciplines and corrects. We see him, the master with wrath poured out, defending Israel, but we will also see many instances in the Torah of him dealing with her in instruction, correction, and discipline. This week's portion primarily reveals God as the protector and redeemer of his people as he disciplines Egypt. Continuing in our portion, we will move quickly from this point. Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Shimon, the sons of Levi, the sons of Koath, Amram, married his father's sister, Yocheved, and she bore him Aharon and Moshe. It was the same Aharon and Moshe to whom Yahweh said, Bring out B'nai Israel from the land of Mitzrayim according to their hosts. They are the ones who spoke to Perot, king of Mitzrayim, who brought out the sons of Israel from Mitzrayim. It was the same Moshe and Aharon. Isn't it interesting that in a passage that begins, these are the heads of their father's households, that the passage makes a beeline through the ancestry to get to Moshe and Aharon? I think that God, I think the point God is clearly making is that Moshe and Aharon were chosen by him as the heads of Israel. Even among the tribes and all the elders, God made a specific selection guided from youth for his purposes, headship and leadership. From this point forward in the portion, notice that God gives Moshe clear instructions at each step of the way. Moshe is walking in complete submission to his head and acting in complete obedience. He does not argue or debate, neither does he delay or procrastinate. His mission if you will, is complete obedience and service to his head. How like Moshe we should be with our king. On very rare occasions going forward, we will see Moshe debate or discuss a matter with God. And I can think of one or two places where he expresses frustration or even interposes himself for Israel. But for the most part, we will see a very humble, submissive servant carrying out the will of his authority in complete trust that the Father has a plan and is performing it. Wives, Moshe is your example for how you are to treat and walk before your husband. 
He was a servant who sought instruction, then carried it out fearlessly, unconcerned about the approval or any of any besides his head. He did the hard things, the thankless things, and dealt with the complaining and pushback from both Pharaoh and the world. And Israel, his children, Moshe's focus was to please God. Husbands, Moshe is an example for how you are to walk before your king and how you are to instruct and lead your wives. He was obedient not to Israel or the whining elders and people, but to his head, God. His approval did not come from his subordinates, but from God. He gave instruction to his subordinates while addressing Perot and the system of bondage they were under. He was a servant willing to place himself in very difficult positions like Perot's throne room for the purpose of protecting the ones in his care. For all of us, as we progress forward through the rest of the Torah, pay close attention to Moshe and to Israel. The layers of relationship are ever present. God, Moses. God, Israel. Moses, Israel. So on and so forth. Notice the dynamics and how the head acts and reacts. Notice as well how the servant acts and reacts. When are they acting and walking righteously? When are they acting or walking unrighteously? What lessons can we learn and take away from each situation? What from these uh, examples can be used to prepare us as husbands and wives to be patriarchal teams, modeling our respective roles in the restoration of Kol Israel? May Yah bless each of you this Shabbat as we learn and grow together. Shabbat Shalom.